0: It's good to be with you. Yeah I I do know so many of your faces. Again Jonathan um, got to be a resident with you. I do want to say thank you um, on behalf of my family that you all poured into us for for two years and loved us so well and sent us out and we learned so much from you uh, mostly from what not to do Um, but we did learn. I gotta throw that dig. He's not even here right and so just wanted to say thank you and I did bring a picture of my family because we're in the uh Forgotten family series, right? So I want to make sure you didn't forget my family. Um, Claire was born here. We were driving by and showing her, here's the hospital. So Claire's three and a half. Frederick is two and Emily is six months. Um, Hannah and I don't tell our ages. So we're, that's, you know, that's where we're at. But just grateful again for you guys and the way you have loved our family so well. So thank you. We would not be able to do the work that we are doing apart from this residency and apart from the work that you guys did of, of loving us so well. So thank you. Well, you are in a sermon series on the forgotten God, or I'm sorry, forgotten family. And I wanted to jump in and just talk a little bit about when we think about a family, one of the the texts that we're gonna talk about today talks about why don't we want to grow the family? Why don't we want as many people as possible to join the family? Maybe another way of talking about this is actually evangelism, right? Unfortunately, that's a word that's not very popular today. We don't like to use it, uh, so we try not to use it. In fact, there was a study that was recently done pulling millennials, and they said, um, in that study, 94% of millennials who identify as Christ followers would say they think it is morally wrong to share their faith. Not just like, oh, I don't want to do it, but morally wrong to tell others about Jesus, to grow with a family. Yet within that same survey, 50% of people said that they think the most important thing that can happen in someone's life is that they meet Jesus. Did you catch that tension? 50% would say, "Oh, it's morally wrong to share my faith, yet the other 94% would say, in the same survey, it's morally wrong to share my faith. So we think it's important to meet Jesus, we just don't think that I should tell you about Jesus. And I started to wonder even a little bit of why. Right? Why don't we want to tell others? And it sure seems like in the climate we're in right now, you need a PhD in apologetics just to tell people why you went to church. Right? Much less all the other things that are accompanied with it. And I think as a result, we just don't want to tell people about it. We don't want people to meet Jesus. We aren't trying to grow the family. But yet, while our culture has changed and it's less popular to do evangelism and tell there's about Jesus, I would argue that the heart of God. Is that others join his family the heart of god is for people to join the family so that's what we're going to look at in today's passage in the book of john you heard some of it read we're going to walk through the text together i'm excited to open it up and i hope we see that god wants others to join his family and that he has a heart for others to meet jesus and to know him so we're going to jump in and it's the book of john i'm going to give you a little bit of background on the book of john the book of john is written about the life of jesus And there's a problem presented in the book of John, which is this, that God exists, but yet humanity cannot know God. Not only can they not know God, they can't see God. They can't even, they can't even approach him. They can't even, they don't even know what they don't know to approach him. And so God, in his mercy becomes a man the incarnation becomes the person of jesus and reveals himself to humanity and the person of jesus but even when jesus comes he often meets people and he kind of just says this stuff that people don't get I'm like what are you talking about and he's often speaking in a spiritual level and the people are trying to understand it in an earthly level and it usually has an earthly meaning but it also has a spiritual meaning so there's all this imagery and metaphor and symbolism used in the book of john and i tell you that because some of that's going to be used here but I also tell you that because if God wants us to grow his family, if he wants others to join his family, the way to do that is through Jesus, to meet Jesus. And we're going to see that in our text. So that's a little bit of a background on our text. And I'm going to begin reading from John chapter 4. You've had some of it read for you. But we're going to walk through a little bit of that together. So beginning in verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was wearied from his journey. So he sat beside the well about the sixth hour. Well, something you need to know is that uh, Jesus is on a journey. He's going from Jerusalem, kind of in the south. He's going up north. And to get to this place... He says he had to pass through Samaria. Technically, geographically, he kind of did. It's on the way. It's it's on the track. It's like, okay, I got to go north. But a lot of religious leaders would do all that they could to avoid Samaria. They would cross over a Jordan River, travel through a desert, and then cross back just so they could avoid Samaria. But Jesus chose to go through Samaria. And we're going to look at it in a minute. But it's because his heart is for people to join his family. He wants to reach the people of Samaria. And I've got to give you a little bit of background on Samaria. It's uh, probably a little bit harder for us to understand, but the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along, right? So I, I don't know the, where, I, where I'm at in Chicago. That would be like saying, hey, Bears and Packers fans don't like each other. Maybe here it's like saying Kansas City fans, or maybe it's like Jayhawk in Missouri, right? There is there's, there's a tension and a, and a hatred that they do not like each other. And it stems deeply because in uh, Jewish history, they were conquered in 722 BC, and they were uh, taken away into exile. And then while the northern kingdom, because it had been divided, the northern kingdom had been taken away. What they tried to do, the Assyrians, was intermarry with the Jews in order to get their race eliminated. Like, we'll just get them to intermarry, worship other gods, because if your wife believes this, you'll tend to follow that belief. So they just started doing all this intermarrying. And so the southern Jews looked at the northern Jews. as what they would call like half-breeds. Right, Harry Potter, this would be mudbloods. Like whatever the, the, the terrible term, it's like we do not like this group. And they viewed it as they had abandoned the faith, they had abandoned the race, they were a different nationality, all of these pieces. So they did not get along, and so therefore the southern the kingdom of Israel, they would leave and try to avoid the Samaritans. They looked at them as the worst. That's a little bit of background. Yet Jesus chooses to cross boundaries and to go to Samaria. The other thing we saw in the first couple of verses is that Jesus is weary. He's tired. Um, Jesus is fully man. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's tired. He's sitting by the well. And it's the noon hour. It says the sixth hour. That's noon. Heat of the day. Let's pick up our story. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, we kind of already listed it here. They don't get along, but there's a couple other barriers that Jesus is breaking. One, uh, Jews don't go to Samaria, okay? Jews definitely don't talk to Samaritans. They especially don't talk to Samaritan women. And then they don't want to eat and drink the food of Samaritans either. Like, this is like, Jesus, you're crossing all of the boundaries right here. What are you doing, Jesus? And so she's even a bit surprised. Why are you talking to me? What are you What are you doing? And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. So Jesus is crossing these boundaries. He's talking to this woman. She's surprised by it. She asked for asking, why are you wanting a drink? Not very kind. Not like, oh, yeah, here's here's your water. She's like, what are you doing? Why are you asking me for a drink? She says, if you knew, you would ask for living water. Now, living water is one of the symbolism that we talked about earlier. Remember, we talked about some of these things that have an earthly meaning, but also have a spiritual meaning. So the physical earthly meaning, uh, running water, living water, would have been like water from a brook, water from a stream, water that's fresh, clean water, not water that's stagnant and from a well, and you have to pull out, and it's not very good. It's like, I could give you better water. There's an earthly meaning. There's also some symbolism that she'll end up catching later where it stands for eternal life. I'm not just making it up, it's in a text. We'll see it in a little bit. But it's also used all throughout the Old Testament where they would talk about living water being eternal life. So Jesus is saying to her, hey, if you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't just ask for this felt need, you would ask for the greatest need that you have. Jesus begins by meeting this woman, and we're going to learn a little bit, but it's the noon hour. She is coming out here alone. Women are supposed to travel in groups to go get water, right? It's like, okay, we're all going to go. The ladies of the village, we're going to go in the morning. We're going to gather the water together. We're going to be together. We're going to pull out the water. It's social hour. We go back. We bring the water that we need. She's traveling alone. She's isolated. She's lonely. She's ostracized by her society. She's rejected amongst her people. And Jesus meets her and tells her, there's a felt need that you have that's water, and there's a deeper spiritual need that you have that only I can satisfy. And if you knew it, you'd ask me for a drink. I even want to pause and just say, how many of us might be in that Samaritan woman situation where we feel like, okay, it's been a hard year, maybe a hard, longer than a hard year, and I feel unseen. I feel unlovable. I feel broken. I've got some needs that I know, the physical water. God, I need you to show up for rent. Or God, I need you to show up in this. Or my kids are having struggles here. I need this. There's the physical need. And there's some deeper needs and deeper longings that we might even be unaware of. Jesus comes to meet her and talk to her about her physical need and the deeper needs that she has that only he can satisfy. Let's keep walking and looking through our text. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You greater than our father, Jacob? You can kind of hear the sarcasm even being used in her voice. Like, how are you going to get water? You're the one asking me for a drink. What are you doing? (laughs) Greater than our father, Jacob, kind of the history, but basically kind of making fun of him. He gave us the well and he drank from it, his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Right? So she's kind of mocking him and where are you going to get this water? And if you're so great, you can't even get the water. She says, no, no, no. The water I have, you're never going to be thirsty again. This is actually meeting. She still doesn't quite get the spiritual meaning. She gets the physical. She's like, wait a minute, hold on. I don't have to come to this well anymore. I don't have to come in the heat of the day where the sun is beating down on me, and I have to do this hard work, and it's and I'm no one, and I'm ostracized, so I don't want to be around people and avoiding people. There's a way to not have to come to do this anymore. Sign me up because I have to get water every day. So he's meeting this physical need that she's after. And she's like, yes, get me that water. But Jesus is pointing out this physical need, this physical longing that you have. Again, there's a deeper spiritual longing that you have. But she's thirsty. Give me this water. And I, and I got to be honest, this is one of the areas where I can step aside from Scripture and say, I know what to say. This is easy. I'm pastor, church planter, somebody says, hey, I need eternal life. Got it done share the gospel in fact john chapter 3 jesus just had a comparison with a man where jesus told them hey for god to love the world whoever believes in him shall not uh, shall not die but have eternal life right have running water jesus just share that verse share with her the gospel she can believe got a convert here we go we're growing a family things are good it's not what jesus does meaning that my view of evangelism is probably a little bit off (laughs) It seems so simple. She's asking, yes, give me this water. But Jesus doesn't just give her the answer. He's going to change the the, the story. He's going to take her in a different direction. It's like, Jesus, what are you doing? Well, for the record, whenever that happens, hopefully you caught my sarcasm earlier, but whenever that happens, Jesus is right and I'm wrong about how to go about this. And so Jesus has got a better way than just giving her the easy answer. So he doesn't say, well, just believe in me and you'll have eternal life, you'll get the living water, your life will be good, and you'll always be happy. It's not Disney ending. He says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Jesus, what are you doing? This was easy, low-hanging fruit. What are you asking her to call her husband for? Well, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Oh, blood twist. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that you have no husband. If you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said to him, what you said is true. (laughs) Jesus, where are you going with this? All right, there's a whole little bit of culture and background where when, uh, in the story of Israel, when men, when Jewish men came to this well, they often met and became betrothed. And so this is early on in the thing, like, Jesus, are you trying to, like, you trying to meet somebody? Like, what's going on, Jesus? Why are you asking about her husband? Like, there's, All this background that a first-time reader walking through this text is like, what is Jesus doing by asking about this? And what do you mean she's had five husbands? And I think we're starting to learn a little bit about why she might be out at the heat of the day getting water all on her own and ostracized from society, right? We don't know for sure, but it sure seems like this might be why she is alone. And as Jesus starts to ask about it, there's some debate about is this, you know, the literal meaning because uh, the, the Samaritans had been known to have uh, gone and intermarried with five different na- nations. And so it's like, oh, is this metaphor for the five nations they've intermarried with, why they're no longer Jewish? Or, you know, is this literal? Uh, probably doesn't really matter. I think the point going after this is she is not, is, is living a pl- life of sin. The man she's with now is not her husband. And when Jesus, she sa- Jesus, the woman says to Jesus, sir, I've perceived that you are a prophet. When Jesus starts to tell this to her, she goes from seeing him as a man to seeing him as a prophet. There's something you've said that you should not know. And how do you know this about me? Something is going on. Um, as a man, when he was wearied and tired, now she sees him as a prophet. Later on, she's going to see him as something else. Hang on to that progression. Well, what does she do when she's confronted with her sin and her brokenness? Which, actually, I even want to pause and just say, I love this moment. Because what often, so often happens to us is we, we, we're, we're, um, we hear the gospel, and we start to make excuses about, well, it can't be for me. And Jesus immediately goes to what could keep her from receiving him. Right? Well, I, I don't deserve the gospel. I'm a broken sinner. I've been married five times. I'm living with someone who's not my husband. Look at my deepest, darkest secret. Jesus brings it up, brings it to light, as if to say, I know the worst things about you. I know the worst things about you, and yet I still want you to meet me. I still want you to join the family. I still want you to know God. Jesus does the same thing for us, right? He sees us in our brokenness. He sees us in our worst places. He sees us in our sin, and he still pursues us. Well, the woman notices she's a prophet, and she does what I would do when confronted with sin. She changes the subject. (laughs) Oh, you want to talk about that? No, thank you. Let's go over here. And she brings up the heated topic of the day. She says, I perceive you're a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that we must worship in Jerusalem. The place is where we ought to worship. Okay, so literally the Jews had their temple where they worshiped in Jerusalem. The Samaritans weren't allowed to worship with the Jews because, again, there was all that hatred. So they started their own temple. She's literally pointing at the mountain right behind her saying, we all worship here. You say we have to worship there. Where do we worship? So she's bringing up the big theological debate of the day. Whatever it is you want to put in that that is for you, that's your big thing, you could put it there. Is it creation or whatever it is? She's, well, Jesus, what about this? Changing the subject Let's not talk about my sin and shame. Let's not talk about my brokenness. Let's talk about something else she's trying to avoid, right? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, the one right here, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Soon it doesn't matter where you worship. You worship what you do not know, you Samaritans. We Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews, But the hour is coming, in fact, it is now here, when true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, there's a lot of background here. But essentially, she brings up the theological debate of the day, and Jesus, I love what he does, because, right, this happens even when we do our own evangelism, right? We start to talk to somebody about Jesus, and then they say, well, I, I can't be saved. Look at my, look at my background, and my, you know, my sin, my shame. is Jesus forgive that? Well, yeah, but I have all these objections. Look at, look what the church has done. The church is broken, and they start to point out all the reasons why they can't believe in God, and Jesus essentially tells her, you know what, this mountain, that mountain, it doesn't matter. It's all going to become obsolete because the true place where you will worship is through me. It's through Jesus. Jesus is how you get to God the Father. Not a mountain, not a temple, not a church, not a religion. It's through Jesus. That's how we can know God. Remember, beginning of John? We can't know God, we can't get to Him. Jesus has come to make God known. Jesus is saying, It doesn't matter where you worship, it's through me. But He also answers her question. But hey, you want to know about the hot topic of the day? Well, Samaritans, hate to say it, you're wrong. Jews, the salvation comes from the Jews. We do worship through Jerusalem. I am going to answer your question, but don't let that distract you. Don't let that get in the way. Don't let the secondary issues keep you from the primary issue. The primary issue is, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with him? Right? We can get caught up in these other things, these other debates, but what do you do with him? That's the primary issue. So that's what Jesus does. He slowly and lovingly tells her, i give you an answer to your apologetics questions. The real way you worship is through me. Don't let that stuff distract you. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep Jesus the center. Now the woman's response. I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am. We translate it am he because it makes it easier. But he says, I am. This is a moment that if you're familiar with the the Bible, is kind of amazing. The name that God gives back in Exodus 3.14 to Moses about who the people of Israel, who the God is, the first time he reveals his name is I Am. Well, Jesus reveals who he is for the very first time to a woman who's a Samaritan, who's a broken sinner, unworthy by Jewish standards to be even talked to let alone worthy of hearing the gospel. She doesn't deserve to be a part of the the family. No one would let her into the family. And yet she's the first person God chooses to reveal who he is to. What a gift. What love. What different standards than you and I might have had, right? God chooses the least of these to say all are worthy to be a part of the family. Not even worthy to be part of the family because of their own, worthy because of what Jesus does, but he wants all people to be a part of the family. Even want you to pause right now and even think about who the people are that we say, well, they can't become part of the family. Jesus goes after them. He says, I want all people to join the family. Even a woman as broken as a Samaritan woman, even a person as broken as me, God pursues us and he reveals who he is. I love this. Okay, so what's going to happen? Is she going to believe? Is she going to fall down in worship? Is she going to say, forget you, or the church is broken, or what is she going to do? The text has us here ready for the answer, and if you're familiar with reading these, uh, the gospels, the disciples show up and like ruin things. It's like what they always do. Thanks, guys. And so then, just then, verse twenty-seven, the disciples come back. You're like, really? And they they marvel that he's talking to a woman. They're like, what is he doing talking to a woman at the well? What's going on? But they don't ask him, What do you seek? Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar. She goes into the town, and she said to the people of Samaria, Come and see. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could he be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. I love this because the woman after she meets Jesus is totally changed. Originally, she sought isolation and she sought water. Now she leaves her water jar, forget the water, and she goes and she seeks people, which she wants isolation. She's broken. She doesn't want to be around people. She's coming in the heat of the day just to avoid people. And now she can't help but go and tell everybody, come and see this man. He told me everything about me. You've got to meet him. This Jesus guy, he might be the one come and see. When we really meet Jesus, we can't help but go and tell others about Jesus. There is a love that starts to occur, and she doesn't even fully understand it yet. We're going to look at it, but I don't think she fully grasps who he is, but she's having this progression of seeing him, seeing him as a man who's weary and thirsty, to a prophet who knows things he shouldn't, to being the Messiah, and in a minute we're going to see that she recognizes him as God. This, this progression that occurs. Okay, the disciples show up. They've kind of ruined things. I'm going to summarize these verses to say, they don't really read things. I just just like to be hard on them. Um, But they come in and they say, hey, Jesus, we brought you some food. He's like, you know what? The food that I need is doing my father's will. And I'm full because I'm doing his will right now. I'm telling people who you don't even think I should talk to, a woman who's not even worthy of anything. I'm telling her about God. I'm letting her meet me. She gets to be a part of the family. And that's what God sent me to do. That is what nourishes me. Jesus says, that's my food. I don't need physical food. And then he says, if you guys would just be a part of this, lift up your eyes and see that there are fields that are white for harvest. Jesus basically says, God desires for others to join the family. He wants everybody to be a part of the family. And if you would just tell others about me, people would come. People would believe. And the disciples are like, who are you talking about? We're in the middle of Samaria. These people don't deserve the gospel go back to Acts chapter 1, I guess forward to Acts chapter 1, it says, Jesus tells his people, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, they've already been in Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus initiates by going to Samaria. It's kind of like, hey, you'll be my witnesses in in Olathe, and then in Kansas, and then to the arch enemies of Oklahoma, or wherever our arch enemies are. For me growing up, it was Oklahoma, but maybe not for you, right? It's like, there's arch enemies and then to the ends of the world. Jesus is fulfilling what he asked them to do. He's going where they don't think the gospel should go. He's asking people to be a part of the family when they don't think they should be a part of the family. And he's saying, go tell others about me. If you do that, people will come. The field is white for harvest. Basically, the people are ready to hear the gospel. How do we know we're talking about the Samaritans? How do we know we're not talking about other people? Well, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the women's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So they came and they believed. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. They asked him to abide with them. And so he stayed and he abided there for two days. Got to pause. Remember, we were supposed to avoid everything about Samaria. Instead, they said, Jesus, stay with us. And Jesus stays with them. This again, he should not be doing it, but he stays where they're staying, he sleeps where they're sleeping, he eats the food where they're eating, right? All the things you're not supposed to do, and he does it because he wants them to know him. And also, abiding language, that's the word here they're using, staying with them, is the terms of what John uses to say whether or not you actually get the gospel. Whether or not you actually believe in Jesus is whether or not you abide. So basically he's saying the Samaritans abided, and Jesus abided, there is this beautiful imagery here of they are getting the gospel. They're believing in Jesus. Many more believed because of his word, Jesus' own word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of you that we believe. We've heard for ourselves, and indeed we see he, Jesus, is the Savior of the world. Again, notice that progression in this section abiding language, and then they see Jesus as a Savior. He went from a man who was hungry to a prophet who knew things he shouldn't to the Messiah who's come to reveal all things. To this man is God, He's Savior of the world. Okay, beautiful story. I love the forgotten family that Jesus starts to say all people are worthy of being a part of my family. We don't exclude. I'm after the least of these. It's a beautiful picture. What does it have to do for us? What does it mean for us? We've got three things for us today. Three, um, three conclusions about how do we help others join the family. The first is this: join in the mission. Join in the mission that God gives the disciples. We're going to see it in other places, but join the mission. Jesus' mission that he gives the disciples is to help others know him. Tell others, practice evangelism. Yes, it can be scary and daunting. This passage isn't meant to be the only way we do evangelism. It's meant to be, there's lots of ways to do evangelism, but evangelism is telling others about Jesus. Do this with your life. Do this with your actions. Do this with your words. But God wants people to join the family, and he made us ambassadors, Christians, little Christs, to go out into the world and tell others about Jesus. And we're living in a world that is hurting and broken and needs a Savior. They don't need us. They need Jesus. Have that conversation. Join in the mission. This is the heart of God, that people join his family. Even a question for some of you today, have you met Jesus? Are you a part of the family? And if you are a part of the family, are you telling others? Can you, can you, are you part of the, the group that goes and tells others? The second thing for you, abide in Christ. How do we help others join the family? We can be abiding in Christ. And the idea here is this. If you just walk away from this sermon and say, okay, I'm supposed to go do more. I'm supposed to go to talk to this person. or I'm supposed to do, do, do. We've missed it. The Samaritans got it. They asked Jesus to abide with them. And that's what we are meant to do, abide in Christ. This isn't about pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and telling others about Jesus. It's we know Jesus intimately, and as a result, love overflows, and we can't help but tell others about Jesus. Right? The woman came and and saw Jesus, then she couldn't help but go and tell. Are you abiding in Jesus? Maybe give you this this analogy. Uh, John goes on to say that there's branches and vines, and that God is the vine, that we are the branches. We're attached to the vine. We bear fruit. Now, we're not detached from the vine and bearing fruit all on our own. That doesn't work. Branches don't bear fruit. Branches are attached to the vine, and the vine bears fruit through the branches. Catch the big difference? That's our role. We're meant to be attached to Jesus. Abide in him. Sit with him. Go to the well that is Jesus that actually satisfies us. Don't look for our satisfaction in the things that are empty and fleeting. And Yes, they meet a need, but ultimately leave us empty. Be filled by abiding in Christ. And then fruit naturally overflows. There's lots of ways we try to help each other abide. Love to have conversations with that about afterwards. But abide in Christ, that's what we're after. The last thing I have for you is starting a spiritual conversation. Starting a spiritual conversation. What I would love your application today after you're thinking about, yep, it is my job, it's God's heart to tell us about Jesus. It is my job to abide in him that overflows in telling others about Jesus. Where do I begin? Start with one person, a family member, a friend, a coworker, a classmate. Start with one person that you love enough to invest in and start a spiritual conversation. You don't have to lead them to Jesus. That's not your role. Your role is to start a spiritual conversation and let Jesus encounter that. You don't have to explain all the apologetics. You don't have to do all the work. Bring them to Jesus. Get rid of this secondary conversation. So choose one person who you want to invest in and start a spiritual conversation, probably beginning by asking them questions, just like Jesus did. Ask them some questions. Care enough about them to help them know Christ and abide in Christ. That's my application for you today. May we, as Christ followers, be people who are joining the mission on fire to others. May we abide in Christ ourselves, and may we start with one person who we want to know Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you loved this woman enough to reveal who you are to her. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to reveal who you are to to us. Lord, that I am a broken sinner in need of your grace, not worthy to be a part of your family and yet you have called me to be a part of your family. Just as you've called every person in this room, just as you desire the world to know you. Lord, may we catch that heart and vision. May we see all people as worthy of hearing the gospel. May we be a part of telling others the good news. And may we do that because of a love for you, because we've experienced the love you have for us. May that just overflow. Lord, even now I ask for us as we sit here and think, is there one person that you're putting on our heart? Is there one person you want for us to think about having a spiritual conversation with that they might encounter you? Would you bring that person to mind if it's from you? And would you give us the courage to follow through